Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Silent. In this series of podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose, very much tongue-in-cheek, the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. Good morning, Jonathan, and it's very nice to be online again to join you in our regular podcasts. This week, we're especially lucky because we have not only a guest, but a very famous guest, a Hollywood film star of great repute, Rupert Everett, who's very well known around the world and who's a very good friend of mine and who very kindly agreed to join us today so that we can discuss matters unrelated to what we usually discuss, which is financial markets, and try and branch out a little bit. So I wanted to thank Rupert for taking the time and the trouble to join us today. One of the most memorable things that I heard or read of is when Orson Welles, who to me is one of the greatest actors, said of Rupert Everett when Rupert was young, this is the best young actor that I've ever come across. That's not bad as a compliment. So (laughs) we've prepared um, a number of questions for Rupert. So why don't I kick off with the first question? What percentage of films turn out to be blockbusters? Is it a minority or is it a majority? Well, Peter, it's really a tiny, 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 tiny minority, partly because uh, most films don't really aim to be blockbusters. The blockbuster market is quite particular. And then, of course, there's the independent market, which is in between blockbuster and art. And then there's the art market. So I, I would say of all films made, uh, and by the way, this is before the whole streaming world started off, but probably 1% of, of films made end up being blockbusters. I mean, the awful reality is probably 30 or 40% of films made never even get a distribution deal. And so don't see the light of day. Maybe not 30 or 40, maybe 25%, but it's a very tough business. But to become a blockbuster, To start with, you have to be a very specific type of film. A few of them are made in England, very few of them, some of them are made in France occasionally, but most of them come out of the Hollywood studio system. A lot of them are action. And uh, so that's uh, not very many, I would say. Interesting. Do you know when, I mean, if you're taking part in a film as an actor, do you have a pretty good idea by the time it's finished whether it's going to work or not? I mean, you've been in one, I suppose you could call it a blockbuster, I'm sure, which everybody's seen, but it's probably not the film for which you would perhaps want to be remembered best, your acting, which you were very, very good, which is My Best Friend's Wedding. Was that a blockbuster? That was a big blockbuster. And I think, uh, you know, obviously the art in my type of job is to be able to identify success, uh, you know, rather like in, uh, I suppose, in your job. And so you read scripts and you have to develop an idea of A, what's good, and then B, what you think is going to tickle the fancy of uh, you know the world and you know and have a kind of eclipse. I think with my best friend's wedding, 
that particular film for me was a, a surprise in a way because uh, my role wasn't very auspicious when I took the job. It was actually felt a bit like a dead end to me. I had two scenes in the film and, and I never played just two scenes in a movie before. But it was one of those uh, experiences where everything suddenly turns into green lights all the way and you just go shooting through town. And I got on very well with the director, with the other actors. They started writing new scenes for me. And then when the film, uh, films like that, they go into a whole testing routine once they're made and, and the studios go down to places like Pasadena outside of the kind of mainstream of Los Angeles or New York. And they show the film to audiences and they gauge audience reactions and then they re-edit the film for those reactions. And all the reactions uh, when they started screening the film were about me as it happened. And, and everyone wanted to see me at the end of the film. So the whole film was reshot for me to appear at the end. So it ended up being a, a very good moment, very unlikely type of moment. And it was really the high point in it really of my career. And it was not exactly downhill from then on, I wouldn't say, but I never managed to surpass that moment uh, commercially. And so how powerful are the media when they review films? Can they sort of make or break a production? Yes, I think they can, and particularly in the independent film market when uh, you're not relying so much on trying. You know, in your blockbuster uh, world, it really depends how much money you're prepared to put into the promotion of a film. If you're prepared to put in the money, you will get the result. Uh, in the independent world, uh, there isn't that recourse to, to tons of money for promotion. So you rely much more on press and on uh, the media response. And it, it, that can very much make or break you, I think. So you find yourself sucking up to the media in order that they give you a good review kind of thing? Well, you can't really suck up to the critics, but uh, you, yes, I mean, the productions will suck up to the critics as much as possible. And you have to, you know, go out and perform for the media, for the newspapers, for the television. And, you know, that's a very important part of the work now. Uh, if you can't do that, or if you're one of those people who refuses to, it's not necessarily a good thing. Tell you, tell us a little bit about what is the role of the executive producer. Every time you see a film now, it seems to have about 18 executive producers on it. Is that a reflection of you getting a slice of the action, as it were, or is it, what does it actually mean? It could be anything from the star's hairdresser to um, somebody's mother. But it's also a title that could be given to somebody who'd fixed up something in the early stages of bringing it together. It's a fairly meaningless role. Uh, it's not. It's neither the line producer nor the actual producer, but it's a kind of one of those um, honorary titles that are given to people who have helped the film along or, or something like that, in a way. Quite often it's given to an actor in the film. They've asked for an executive producer role. Uh, it's, it's fairly meaningless. I've often wondered what happens if, for some reason, an actor walks out in the middle of a film, a production of a film. Well, the answer to that, Peter, is they don't. They can't. They're legally bound to be in the film. You sign a contract, and if you walk out of the film, uh, you're liable to be sued for, the, uh, for the, the entire value of the film. In the old days, that did happen a bit. Famously, James Fox, uh, the actor, walked out on the film about Isadora Duncan. He met up with um, an old actor at the gates of Pinewood who was going on a fishing trip down the Amazon or something, and he said, come with me, and he just went like that, the next day he'd got disappeared into Brazil. But that's the kind of uh, the thing that legends are made of, but it's not really a reality. You can't walk out on a movie, really. No, no. 
So which of the many films that you've made have you got the most satisfaction out of? Well, I suppose uh, the most satisfaction I got uh, was making my own film, which I wrote and produced and acted in. And I very much enjoyed uh, the process of, uh, of, of creating my own story. It was fraught with problems, but it was for me a, a very important experience and proved uh, to me myself that I had more stamina than I thought I'd had before. And, uh, and I was very pleased with the results. So that for me was my high point. But I suppose um, I love making My Best Friend's Wedding, for example, that one we were talking about before, uh, because you, when you do feel that impetus of the whole world suddenly coming behind you, which happens occasionally in show business, it's an amazing feeling. Uh, and uh, it's rather like being on drugs in a way. So that was very nice too. So presumably you have your favorite actors and actresses, in other words, those that you enjoyed working with most and uh, those that have been most difficult to work with. But you have worked with some really, really good, uh, very famous actors and actresses. Who would you say from the actresses that you've worked with, who have you enjoyed working with most, if I can ask that question? Well, my favorite actress that I've ever worked with, I suppose, is one called Emily Watson. She is a, a wonderful English actress, and I, I, I loved working with her. I loved also working with Julia Roberts and Cameron Diaz. I thought they were great to work with. Um, I loved working with Kathy Bates. She was very nice to work with. Um, I think on the whole, I've always got on with the actresses on the, for the most part, even the most eccentric ones. Um, quite exciting. I think to, to make it as an actress in a very male-oriented world, pre-Me Too, you have to take your hat off to them because they have to play a very canny game. Because I think one of the problems of, of, for, for girls has been they've got to be sexy. If you go for dinner with a producer and the producer says, you know what, you remind me of my little sister, you might as well pack up and go home. But at the same time, you have to know how to protect yourself. And that's very, very difficult. And uh, it was a very tough male world. And so the women who managed to negotiate their way through that, and uh, they become kind of men as well themselves in a way. And I find them fascinating and very inspiring, but it's, uh, it's certainly not easy. And I, I find watching on the sidelines, these incredibly powerful women having made it in Hollywood, very touching and inspiring and fascinating. I bet. Uh, but somebody like um, Helen Mirren, for example, who, who made, um, I saw quite a few of her films, and, and some of them were very, how shall I say, very ex exotic. Um, and I, I remember seeing a film which you made with her. I can't remember what it was called. But would she also have had problems climbing up the greasy pole? She was in a different world, you see. She came from that world of the newly liberated woman in 1968. So all those actresses, they thought it was a kind of badge of honor to take off their clothes and to express themselves sexually, uh, if that's what you're talking about in the kind of exotic side of Helen's career. Glenda Jackson, Helen Mirren, all that generation, um, they were a, a different world to now. They were all kind of socialists to start with as well. It was at the time when uh, the communists thought they were going to get into the UK through the theatre, for example, which is completely not the case now. And um, I think her climb up the greasy pole happened very late. She became a big star very late in life. Uh, it was after she did um, 
prime suspect. What was uh, the TV series when she played a policeman? Uh, age, she was probably 55 by the time that happened. And from that came the Queen. And from the Queen came sudden, really kind of a golden year Hollywood uh, stardom. But before that, she was more of a, a, an English theatre actress, really. Well, we must yes. have to talk about, you know, male actors now. And uh, are they harder to work with sometimes? Is there a lot of ego around and do you have to um, handle them carefully in some cases? I think, uh, yes, men get quite drunk on the whole on success. I mean, everybody gets drunk on success, actually. It's impossible not to. But uh, the male ego is such a weird, fragile, defensive thing that quite often I think you find men are quite um, maniacal sometimes. Not always, but, uh, you know, they tend to... It, it happens to men very young. Uh, you know, you're 22, 23, and suddenly uh, you're treated like a god. And uh, everyone says, you know, you, your eyes have lots of soul and, uh, you know, but actually really behind those eyes is normally the kachink of the cash register, uh, you know, ringing out loud and clear. But I think it, uh, it success is a heady wine. And uh, all of us, I think, and women too, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. One of the subjects that has always fascinated me as a typical behind the scenes subject is the stuntmen. Because you don't really hear much about the stuntmen. You, you read their names on the screen at the end of the film. But what I was always fascinated to find out is how many things go wrong? How many accidents are there? How many stuntmen pay with their lives? And how can anybody even think of doing stunts? It must be very dangerous. So I was wondering what you thought of all that. Well, um, there are famous cases of, you know, terrible tragedies in, in film and in stunts. Uh, the, I think the stunt man is, uh, they're people who like being in danger and uh, they don't mind, you know, falling off things and stuff. I mean, I'm not really the very good person to ask because most of my films weren't very stunt oriented. So they're, they're always, um, I don't know, they're kind of ex-military sometimes, uh, ex-SAS sometimes nutters sometimes um and it's a real community the stunt world and they all go from film to film uh together but it's on the whole it's it's the side of the, the cinema which is very militaristic you know because they do take a great deal of care on the whole and uh, you always feel very safe and comfortable with with the stunt guys i think while well, on this subject, i just wondered i mean i have no real idea of if i went onto a film set where you're making a big movie there are hundreds and hundreds of people's names on the credits. I mean, is it like when you're taking part in a film, you are obviously at the center of the attention? But what do all these people do? I mean, is this why films are so expensive? Because you have 300 people milling around doing different kinds of jobs. Is that, is that one of the, the main factors then? Yes. I mean, it's, it is expensive because, you know, you have, depends how big the film is, but, you know, you have an on-set group of about 30 or 40 moving the lights around, getting the sets ready, uh, the lighting department, the sparks, the assistants, uh, you know, it, it does move with military precision because remember you're, you're moving from location to location, from scene to scene. So nothing's the same. Uh, you know, you do one scene in the morning and you have to do something else in the afternoon and everything in the afternoon has to be ready. So, you know, you need quite a lot of people to make it work. I always remember when my dad used to come and see me working on films. He was furious because everyone seemed to be standing around. 
But in fact, they're not really. I mean, they, they do stand around, but they have to stand around at a certain point and then they move. Um, but it's a, it's a very costly thing. To keep it moving fast, you need a lot of people. A few years ago, you told me of your encounter with the writer of the Flashman papers. Uh, for some reason, we spoke about that, uh, those books, which I thought were probably the most entertaining read I've ever had extremely good, very, very funny. And I made a passing remark. I said, you should make a film and you should be the Flashman. And I think you told me that you met George MacDonald Fraser um, and you had this particular discussion with him which didn't really come to anything. Is that I didn't, right? I didn't actually meet him, uh, but I, I went after the books for a long time and uh, my agent was friends with him, but he never wanted to let the books go. There was a f one Flashman film, I think, at the beginning, and he'd hated it so much that he was very loath to let them go. I, I would have loved to have been Flashman. And I think when I was younger, I could have been rather good because I can do all those things like ride, uh, or I could. And they are amazing books, but um, it never happened. And, and they haven't happened since either, strangely enough. So I presume he left in his will a uh, thing not to have them done. Yes. Uh, Jonathan, did you ever read those books? I did, very much so, yeah. They were fun. They were a lot of fun. Yeah. A brilliant a, idea. Great character. Brilliant idea. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, yes, you said some interesting things about, you know, now as an actor, you can make a whole career in television and so on, because there's so many other ways of making a career as an actor now. There's so much television around, and now we've got uh, streaming and Netflix and so on. But is it still the case that as an actor, you kind of rather look down on TV work? It's not quite as prestigious as doing big films or indeed oh, playing not, in theatre? No, not anymore. And I think, you know, we might find that the pandemic has completely wiped out cinema uh, forever because whether people will uh, go back into the cinemas now after they've got so addicted to these endless uh, TV series uh, is uh, anybody's guess. And I think a lot of people feel that this could be the moment of letting the cinema go, uh, which I think is a great shame. But, um, you know, maybe we are moving into a much more virtual world where this is just a kind of precursor of us all sitting at home endlessly and, you know, swiping left, swiping right and watching everything on our computer. So uh, I think for me, it's a great shame because I feel the series say in 13 hours what could be said in one and a half hours still. I mean, they're, they're terribly repetitive, a lot of them. And I think the idea of people going out and seeing things together is kind of the essence of what um, community is about. So for me, I think it's a, it's a great shame, but I don't hold out much hope, frankly, for all these chains of cinema. Although I noticed today that the, the guy who owns um, Cine World in America has floated himself on the stock market at 346p and uh, is taking a big payoff. So obviously something's working somehow. But wouldn't they make films which they would then sell to Netflix Yes, I mean, that's what happened during the pandemic. A lot of the films that were meant to be uh, released in theatres just got released uh, um, by the streamers. And, uh, of course, they're still holding out for the Bond film uh, to open on screens. But, I mean, how long will that last? Who knows? I mean, the thing is, everything is up in the air to such an extent now. Maybe we'll look back on this in three years' time and, and we'll have forgotten about it. And maybe we won't. It's difficult to tell, really. Have you ever done a lot of TV work yourself? I mean, in terms of that kind of thing. I mean, I've, <laughs> I kind of remember watching um, a program of what it was like behind the scenes on Dallas or Dynasty or one of these things. 
and mm. these, you know, this kind of uh, typecast sort of fading actor reading his lines, you know, has put his glasses on to see what, what his lines are being held up by somebody at the far side of the screen. I guess we've moved on a long way from that. Things are much more sophisticated than that now. But uh, have you had a lot of experience in TV work of that sort? Uh, quite a lot of experience, yes, and it's 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 good. I like working TV. It's uh, it's more fast moving than the old world of cinema was. You know, they get a lot done, and you have to keep on your toes. And there are still people who you know have their lines written up on large pieces of paper. I'm not yet one of those, but I'm only waiting for the day <laughs> to happen. But uh, no, TV is uh, is exciting. I think certainly more exciting than uh, the the old-fashioned way of making movies where you only did four or five or six or seven setups a day, which is very slow, sitting around a lot. And I suppose in your case, you have travelled all around the world to make films, no? Presumably. I have, and I think that's, for me, has been one of the most exciting things about it. I've really got to know the world very well. Um, coming here to Rome, for example, it really feels like an old friend. I've done so many films at Cinecitta and... Uh, I know so many people from the business here, and uh, it's wonderful, I think, at this age to know a lot of the world very well. I think that's one of the great privileges that I've had. I really do feel at home in lots of different places, and I think that's quite rare, and it's really to do with having, having worked so much. The most fascinating place to go, of course, is Brussels, because it really is, not that I'm, as you know, Peter, not a Brexiteer, I'm a great Remainer, but it's a terrifying town. And you can never get a reservation in a restaurant if you're part of the cinema world because it's always full of lobbyists and MEPs having 10 course meals uh, that go on forever. And uh, you can never get a reservation. But that's a funny town too, that I know well. How funny. And so have you done a few films in foreign languages, in Italian or in French? Or I've done in Italian and in French. And uh, of course here, just on the business sense, here there's a very good tax deal. There's a 40% tax reduction here. And in Belgium, there's a 40% tax reduction. The French, of course, typically for them, withhold everything from anybody unless uh, the film is over 60% in French. So uh, it, it means if you want to make your film in Paris, you pay so much money that you can hardly afford to do it, which is why when you normally do films in France, they end up being in Belgium. Yes, and they call it l'exception culturelle. And I think that uh, there's only a fixed percentage of non-French films mm. that can run through French television channels, if I remember mm. right. Absolutely, uh, that's it. And that's what they're doing. I mean, now in the post-Brexit world, they're going to chastise us even more. They don't want to have any uh, or a very tiny amount of British product in the European television market. So, I mean, it's, it's very complicated. For example there was a series being made about the royals, very bad series in Germany. And I was just amazed and horrified to see that they said no British people need apply. So there we are. Here's the result of Brexit, a, a film that is about the British royals. I mean, there's no one else who really can play the British royals except for British people. But anyone who's got a British passport shouldn't apply. So, you know, we really have done ourselves, uh, shot ourselves in the foot, unfortunately. Well, Jonathan and I used to have, not for a while now, but we had some discussions about Brexit. Is it good? Is it not good? In the end, we thought there's always going to be food for discussion as this thing evolves. And so I find it fascinating to hear what effects Brexit has had in your businesses. And I find that, of course, uh, very unfortunate because I have to say that although the French, for example, have produced some exceptionally good films, as have the Italians. 
as have the Germans and as have the Austrians, I still think that on balance, English-speaking films have a depth and a width that is probably unique. So I don't see why one has to curtail that. Well, this is where we see in, in play the whole problems, you know, the historical problems. For example, between the French and the English, there's always been a sense of anger from the French point of view because we have access to the American market, which they have much less access to, obviously, because of the language. So uh, they've always been, I think, rather jealous about that. Uh, the Italians, on the other hand, have always been open for business. And the Germans, uh, I disagree with you slightly, they haven't made, they, they never really managed to pull cinema together that much in the, in the same way as the French and the Italians and the English, I don't think. Maybe I'm influenced by a film I saw the other day called Das Boot. Yeah, but Das Boot is what they always say, Das Boot, Das Boot, Das Boot, but what else? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll have to think about that, Rupert, and I'll tell you when we next speak. <laughs> so we often talk about the problems that uh, actresses have as they get older. I'm not liberty to reveal your age, but you are, of course. But um, is it a problem as you get older? What are your ambitions now? Are you going to you know, become one of those splendid character actors we're going to see in everything from now on? I hope so. I, I think I am one of those character actors already. Um, I, my ambition really is to survive, uh, apart from anything else, and to, you know, to keep earning a bit of money. Uh, you know, everything has changed. In the old days, to be me, you know, uh, white, middle class, middle aged, normally I would go clip clopping off into the sunset, playing, uh, you know, quite a good few good roles. But now I could be a pariah. And the only card I have left to play, strangely enough, is the one that was uh, the negative card before, which was being gay. So, you know, everything's turned around upside down now. I don't know how things are going to end up, uh, really. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, we're in a moment of such great change and such extremism in everything that who knows what's going to happen. Someone like me could be just an outdated machine and end up with the old, you know, Olivetti typewriters on the scrap heap. <laughs> but are you working on it, if it's not an indiscreet question, a particular project right now? Well, I've been very lucky. Thank you for asking, Peter. This year I played in a very nice film quite a good part, and I'm about to play the Holy Roman Emperor in a series about uh, Catherine de' Medici. So that's quite nice too. Shooting in Marseille and Amboise, uh, which is also quite nice. And then next year I'm making my own second film that I wrote myself, I'm directing and acting in too. So, so far, things are okay, but not, I wouldn't paint a brilliant picture, but I'm surviving, you know, uh, which is great. My so, final question to you, Rupert, is you've written certainly two books, of which I have read one. It's very entertaining. Are you intending to write another book? Well, uh, actually, you're one down. I've written three books. Actually, I've written five books altogether, but I've written three uh, memoirs. And my last one came out last year. And my next one is coming out next year. So, uh, you know, I'm churning them out, as they say. Thank God, because in lockdown, it, another thing that was very lucky for me was having that job to fall back on and to keep me, to keep me working. You know, I've been writing quite a lot, scripts and, uh, and books and stories and stuff. Well, I know writing is very hard work, as we all know, but uh, do you get as much pleasure out of writing as you do out of making movies? Uh, no, Jonathan, I hate it. I hate writing in a way because I feel so... I'm easily discouraged. You know, when you're an actor, you work in a group 
And uh, when you're a writer, as you know, you're on your own. And, and this ch change is really the hardest thing to accommodate because when you're in a group, you're like a kind of pinball. You can work off other people. But when you're on your own, you're on your own. And uh, that can be, it's difficult sometimes. Well, I've read two of your books and uh, greatly enjoyed them. Um, Thank you. Fascinating <laughs> insight into an actor's world. So it's been very good to have you on this podcast. And uh, I hope we can get you back again and tell us how it worked out with the Holy Roman Empire uh, when you come back again. Yes, well, uh, that would be very nice. starts next week. But thank you very much for having me. Peter, thank you for having me. Very nice to meet you, Jonathan. I hope uh, you all have a lovely summer. And over and out, right? Over and out. <laughs> over and out. Okay. <laughs> You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.